Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD Hi, it's Michelle. Hey, this is Ted, and welcome back to Spaßbremse. Today, we're talking coal, the cola, but like the, the physical <laughs> black thing, not the, not the slang for money. The natural resource. Yes. And you've probably seen news of the protests in the Western German village of Lutzerath from a couple weeks ago, still kind of an ongoing news topic over a planned surface coal mine there. And we want to get more into this topic. Like I said, you've probably seen a little bit about it, but we want to give some historical context as well as information about what's actually going on 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 the ground there and so we've got a great guest a return guest for everybody here it's rory casey a journalist based here in berlin rory thanks for coming back on hey guys thanks uh, thanks for having me back it's a pleasure we're excited for this it's a little different topic than last time but it shows you uh, <laughs> <laughs> extreme, <laughs> extreme range as a journalist just covering covering the whole field from uh right-wing think tanks could to, not be further <laughs> well yeah it's kind of I'll take that. <laughs> so showing his showing his command of a, a wide range of journalistic skills. Rory's here talking climate and coal instead of um, Nazi adjacent uh, foundations. Yes. So yeah, R Rory's been to Lutzi, Lutzerath. The, it's we'll probably call it Lutzi because that's what the sort of it's just easier to say. Yeah. Also, and it's yeah. like a cute nickname that people have been using for it. So let's say Lutzi. Yeah, the campaign to stop this coal mine in the village that, that would result in the destruction of the village is called Lutzi bleibt, like Lutzi stays. So we'll probably call it that. It's a village about an hour west of Cologne. It's not in the traditional like rural area that's really famous for coal, but it's in that general western part of Germany that, that um, has traditionally produced a lot of coal, both deeper mining, hard coal, and uh, surface level lignite, which we'll get into the difference a bit. We'll have a real like crash rocks for jocks course in this episode, maybe. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and so we wanted to have him on to discuss the politics of this, the history of the project in particular, but also the kind of history of coal in Germany and the climate movement more generally. Rory wrote an excellent piece about Lutzerath and the mine and the evacuation and the protesters opposing the evacuation of the village for the LRB blog, which we'll link to. So yeah, what's going on here? Um, why is this such a big deal? Like, it's a tiny village. It's it's one coal project. Like, why has this become a kind of flashpoint um, in both national and international media? Yeah, so it's been building for a couple of years recently. Um, the coal mine, the Garzweiler coal mine, which is this huge open cast mine in Nordrhein-Westfalia. It's, it's about 48 square kilometers or something enormous like that. Um, <clears throat> is expanding and Lutzerath, which was a, a small vi village of um, a couple of dozen people, maybe around 100 people at its peak, was slated for destruction uh, as the mine expanded. And basically a couple of years ago, um, the last the last resident, who's a farmer called um, Eckhart Hoykamp, tried to resist this. He brought various court cases against the mine owners, RWE, a multinational energy firm, and 
a lot of different various different climate groups um decided to try and um support him and he was also supportive towards them he allowed them to uh stay on their land stay on his land and so over the years they kind of built up a camp there with the eventual plan of resisting the the final eviction which came two weeks ago when the uh, police and the energy company decided to clear out uh, the couple of hundred protesters who tried to resist them. I have a question about the farmer very specifically. Yeah. <laughs> so he still owned the land up until when? Or like the the AVE bought the whole parcel of the village, right? Yeah, so... On the German law, and I think this does originate with the Nazis, but was was continued for many decades after, the mining companies have very wide privileges for um, expropriating land yeah. if there are um, if there are resources beneath. So it's like when, eminent domain in the U.S. would be what we would yeah. call this type of thing. So I mean. Different residents, not all residents obviously want to be expropriated and that they are compensated for that, obviously. But um, you can resist it, but ultimately you're, you're going to lose. Um, the hope for Hoykamp was maybe that the timing would work in his favor, that if the case was big enough and with Germany trying to exit coal, that this could be the, this mm. could be the, one, the first one to be saved. That was not to be the case, though... Ultimately, a few other the the, the struggle for Lutra did save a few other villages nearby, but not his. So, yeah, basically the that was why Lutra was was the focus is because it came at this point where a lot of people, even politicians, decided that this is around the time we need to exit coal. Why not save this place? And why not? Why not this be the fight that that ends coal? And this farmer happened to not take the first settlement deal of like selling his land and kind of chose to fight it a bit, which created the window for yeah the the coal pits in NRV and even that specific coal pit have demolished quite a lot of villages over the years, and a lot of people have been displaced. Partially, some people kind of expect this. They know decades ahead it will happen mm. and coal mining is such a big part of um, the economy in the region that people somewhat accept this. He didn't. He was obviously quite um, sympathetic to the climate movement and, and spoke quite powerfully in the media about you know the need to end coal and so on. And he was a fourth generation farmer. So it was, it was a, you know, a crossover between the broader German climate movement and this one farmer who... Yeah. You know, didn't want to leave his farm. And we'll talk a bit about how this, like you said, this one specific case kind of intersects a pretty pivotal moment in German German climate policy, both initially looking like, you know, we're going to get out of coal and then with the decreases in Russian gas imports after the invasion, sort of this re reacceptance and sort of necessity to, to feel like we need to, to go back to coal and particularly this kind of like surfaced mine lignite which is very polluting and just like in, engulfs these villages in this really apocalyptic looking pit um, with these if anyone hasn't seen like the, the pictures of these machines are are pretty wild that just sort of like gobble up the earth yeah i mean visually the the scene is like quite impressive in a horrific way it really looks like the end of the earth that you can IWE, the mine owner, even has like um, a viewing point that you can stand on and you can oversee the whole mine. It goes almost to the horizon. 
It's about 200 meters deep and you can just see layers of earth scraped off the lignite beneath. The machines, the, the excavators or the baggers that, uh, that excavate and expand the mine are some of the biggest machines on earth, the biggest machines ever made. But even like these they look tiny, they look wheels. like toys yeah, in, the, yeah. in the pit because it's so big. Yeah, yeah. And so this is like like visually totally different from what you kind of picture as like a a typical coal mine, which would be like the big deep shaft where there's like a sort of structure on top of it. And then you go all the way down and then there's a long shaft and sort of side things where they take out like the sort of harder, deeper underground coal. And there'd maybe be like machines on the top of the earth that you would see and associate with the coal mine, but not like as big of a scar on the earth. And this is on the surface. So it's really just like, just gobbles up the earth and creates this sort of like, yeah, just a like a like a wasteland, like a giant a giant pit that just like grows ever larger. Yeah, I found the images of the protesters like standing on the kind of cliff's edge gave mm-hmm. you a little bit of a sense of scale. I imagine. Like, I mean, the scale is just like yeah. it's 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 hard to understand until you're there and you feel so microscopic compared to the size of it. But yeah, it, because it's the lignite coal, it's um, it's more peaty. It's 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 not as compressed as um, as black coal, which means it's um, it's closer to the surface, close enough that it requires uh, open cast mining instead of pit mining. It also means there's less. It's less dense and there's less carbon in the. Um, or it's, it's less fuel efficient, basically. So mm. you burn more of it for less energy than you would get from black coal, and so it is actually the most more or less the most polluting fossil fuel there is. So it's both extra polluting and completely destroys the landscape. So Yes, it's one of the most violent and destructive things you can do to nature, I think, is is uh, open-cast mining. And you really see it there. Yeah, it's worth going in these areas, too. I said, you know, look up the pictures of these machines. But even just poking around on, like, a Google satellite view, especially some of these areas in Germany, um, also in, in Saxony, you mentioned, is a big area where they, they did a lot of lignite mining um, during the DDR. And you just see these, like giant brown like splotches that are like this can be like the size of like an airport like that that kind of visible of like how how large they are from a from a satellite view yeah it's really it's a really remarkable thing to to do to a landscape especially in such a densely populated country like germany of just taking huge swaths of it and just making it nothing and evicting uh tens of thousands of people yeah uh, yeah. in in different parts of uh, Germany. There's, there's three main parts. There's Nordrhein-Westfalia, there's the central um, area in more or less Brandenburg, and then there's kind of the southeast near the Polish border in Saxony. But in the la- something like in the last hundred years, the area that's been excavated for, for lignite is larger than the size of Greater London. It's like enormous. Yeah, I think if people didn't see the giant spiked wheel, maybe they saw uh, the mud wizard or Greta getting swept off her feet. There was the, there was some iconic like it's a very grim situation, but there yeah. were some pretty good memes that came out of the thing. There were some moments of levity and I know Rory you said you weren't there on the day that the protest was taking place where the where the mud wizard Yeah, I sadly left the day before. <laughs> um I, I missed the mud wizard, but it's um, yeah. The also worth noting that around Lutzera is is sort of like empty or open fields. I think sugar beet fields or something like that. But the weather was terrible throughout the week of the eviction, and it was constantly raining. It, there's no cover from the wind, so 
it was really this like um i think greta thunberg compared it to the lord one of these battles in the lords of the rings it really looked like the end of the earth and you had these masses of on the saturday when thousands of protesters bust in and then try to charge towards Lutzerat and the fence that had been erected around it um you just had these baton charges from police lines like smashing into protesters in this like mud and then the police falling over and then a guy dressed as a wizard or a, a monk yeah we'll, we'll link to this video it probably sounds crazy what we're talking about but it was like this really surreal scene where like a guy dressed in like a i guess like a, the old kind of like franciscan monk kind of looking yeah. thing Robes. Uh, the robe the like brown robe like a jedi like with a hood, just like very a, very funny yeah. looking thing is like is running around the, the mud with the cops that are trying to get him. And the cops are all in their like heavy steel toed boots falling down in the mud. And he's like either barefoot or has like lighter shoes on and just kind of moving quite nimbly through the mud. And then he like feigns helping up a cop and then pushes him back down into the mud. And then like three other cops fall over. And he's like, this one guy is like deftly yeah. clowning on like four different cops. Well, I and- think also the cops, they're in like full riot gear. So they're literally wearing like shin guards and vests they probably weigh like twice of their actual weight and so they're just unable which probably to... isn't insubstantial to begin with it was like these stories <laughs> like if you read about like medieval knights just falling over in the mud and yeah the weight of their armor like holding them down no, yeah no that's exactly what i thought like reading about the, the the crusades and stuff where the european knights were all like laden in really heavy armor and then the like yeah. more more nimble like camel riding i mean i was just wearing were, some were dark to, like, and i was like i was not falling over like that yeah it wasn't <laughs> wasn't too hard for me. Yeah, but I mean, so that was like, that image specifically was a few days after you were there. But maybe you mm. can kind of tell us a bit more what it was like in the village, like the structures getting torn down, or also just about the protest as you saw it. I know you mentioned that there were also a bunch of like security corps from the um, mm. RWE. R-W-E. Yeah, so I I arrived um, the day the eviction began, which was Wednesday, uh, two weeks ago. And it started like at the crack of dawn or just before dawn. And it was the biggest, it was billed as the biggest police operation in the history of Nordrhein-Westfalia. There was over a thousand police, I think, um, with hundreds bust in from other states. There were also hundreds and hundreds of yellow vested workers from the RWE, the mine owning company. And so they worked very quickly. They basically within the village itself, there's about seven buildings standing, mostly the farm buildings from from Hoykamp's farm. So there's barns, there's farmhouses, a couple of other buildings and uh, quite a few trees. And over the years, the uh, protesters had been preparing for this moment. They'd built all sorts of um, structures tree houses and some of these were like very elaborate duplexes there was an enormous wooden tower there were these um, tripods or monopods that people were occupying they had fortified all of the buildings they barricaded the doors and windows they were occupying roofs they constructed raised wooden platforms within the barns they had um, cemented like steel girders and, and other bits of metal into the the road into the tarmac to block vehicles it was uh, it was very Fortified, impressive I yeah mean. <laughs> it was very impressive but the police did work very quickly and um by within a few hours it was only by evening time the entire ground level had been cleared and basically the protesters 
um, have kind of specialized in learning uh, climbing and, and occupying things from heights because it takes longer to get you down from a height and there's there's obviously a risk of, of hurting someone so you are you are putting yourself in harm's way but it makes it harder for the police to remove you so they had just this kind of web of wires of of, um, of climbing ropes between buildings these uh, tripods and poles the towers the tree tops themselves and um and they it, were like live streaming from the top of these yeah. tripods yeah, they were Certain very ones, yeah. active on social media. Very, it was very well organized from both sides, um, the police and the protesters. The protesters had wanted to make a media spectacle of it, and they did. Yeah. I mean, it became a very uh, big international story. Um, visually, it's got everything you'd want out of like a dramatic news story yeah. between the Con- mud battles. Congrats to both sides. They played yeah. hard. They left it all out there <laughs> on the apocalyptic pit mine. Oh they did. I mean, the protesters were... The ones I spoke to were a bit shook almost at how how efficiently the police managed to move them on. Uh, they were really expecting, and the police had announced this before, like a weeks-long, a month-long operation. It was over within less than a week, really. Um, uh-huh. They worked throughout the night, which I don't think protesters expected. They had specialist climbing crews, the police um, officers were like full of carboners, like climbing ropes and... They had uh, kind of cherry picking machines to lift officers up and try and yank quite quite cavalierly sometimes at uh, protesters from heights. Um, they were bashing in doors to the um, to the buildings. They were very thorough and um, yeah, I think um, made it was quick over. work of it. Yeah, they did, and ultimately the last ones remaining were this couple called uh, this pair called Pinky and the Brain who announced themselves about halfway through the eviction via like a social media video that they were occupying a tunnel, a secret tunnel under the earth somewhere, which was under one of the buildings. And um, that that did delay things for quite a while because I think... A couple of days even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were there for a couple of days in this sort of like little cubby hole that I guess they they excavated into the earth themselves. And um, yeah, that those, those guys were the last to leave. But... Um, it was all over by, I think, Sunday or Monday morning. And I think those two, um, I'm going to call them anarchists because I believe they are and have <laughs> described themselves as yeah. such. Um, and I mean squatting in a tunnel beneath a protest camp um, just gives off that energy. I think they left of their own accord on Monday morning. So like, it wasn't like the police didn't actually go and get them right like they Mm -hmm. they chose they were like yeah we yeah and that was the case for a lot of people i mean a lot of yeah i think and in the first day a lot of people particularly the ones who weren't occupying buildings or trees left of their own accords they you know they they weren't forcibly removed or some you know there weren't as many arrests as you might think i think there was some level of violence expected and there was an early uh, Molotov cocktail thrown, but apart from that and a few fireworks, there wasn't really much violent resistance from, from the protesters. And yet, on Tagesschau, <laughs> it was framed entirely as, uh, oh, violence against the cops in Lutzerat. Like, they they didn't speak to a single protester. They clipped a little bit of Greta's speech, but mostly they said, like, oh, look at what these cops are up against. 
how, how well, everyone got sick of hearing about their plight on New Year's Eve, so they had to find a new a oh. new victimhood thing for the police after this, I guess. Yeah. I mean, they may have hurt themselves falling in the mud on the yeah. weekend. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. It's such a good video. Um, so looking at these like structures that you described, what it reminded me of a bit is these... Uh, things called adventure playgrounds mm-hmm. for German children where there are no adults allowed. This is not not to like make some sort of trivial <laughs> comparison of the climate protesters, but there are these playgrounds where no adults are allowed and the kids are given like hammers and uh, nails and like real, um, real Vektorge, like real tools to build their own thing. And so... There's something about like watching the squat kind of setup that makes me think it's like uniquely German. Is this true? I mean, I know there were. It also doesn't look dissimilar to like a Berlin club outdoor yeah, or like a music festival or something. Like, there is a yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the Sisyphus Garden or like the like there, DIY. There is a sort of like universal German DIY aesthetic, whether it's a climate protest or a club or a playground. Yeah, yeah repurpose pallets. Yeah, Reper- I think that's the dominant theme. Yeah, <laughs> but but you know it, it reminded me instantly, especially with the tripods and the climbing up high as a strategy, like you said, because it just takes you longer to get down. Of the the protest camp in Hambacher Forst, or mm. there's one going on now, I believe in Danerüda or Dana Dani is the nickname of it. But this this approach, this method that the protesters are taking has been done before, right? Like, this is not the first time. And yeah. fairly effectively. Like, we talk about how the cops were pretty clinical in this situation, but, like, it's not like the history of climate resistance in Germany is, is totally a, a tale of only losing battles. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of different groups that were in Lutzerat, and that that's particularly um, what makes it stand out from even other kind of similar forest occupations before. You had everyone from... Um, you know, the uh, Louise Neubauer, the face of the Fridays for Future movement, who who's a bit of a more mainstream figure. And then you had the kind of hardcore who are probably the people still in the trees at the end of the day, where they kind of like kind of autonomous left or anarchists who are the people you might find in, in squats in the cities in Berlin. And who seem to have kind of a professional setup at this. We were talking about it earlier off mic that they like train for this kind of yeah i i also visited the camp around when it was starting in in 2021 just before the elections then and i got a little more time then given the circumstances to, to chat to people about why they were there and i i did remember speaking to someone who was actually a kind of veteran of the hambacher forest which is a forest that's not too far away it's one of it was one of the last old growth forests left in germany and that was um, scheduled for destruction with, uh, because of the expansion of another uh, kind of sister mine to the one near Lützerath. And they occupied that for, for years. Um, they built even the tree houses in Lützerath were impressive. But if you see pictures of the ones in Hambach, these are very, very elaborate structures, very, very high off the ground. And that um, took, took quite a few weeks to evict and eventually... They managed to um, delay the um, destruction of the trees long enough in the courts that the German government decided they would, as part of their coal phase out, spare the rest of the forest. 
And so that was it was. So a, they won. Like they they came to an agreement. Yeah, it was it was some a of it got victory. got raised before they. They were evicted. It was actually the same police officer, I believe, who led that eviction as the one in Lutzra, uh, who is is a Green Party member. Member, funny enough. Oh my but, god! Um, yeah, I saw that quote where he was like. Oh, I'm doing my duty or something. Or like, what did he say? He said kind of like it was, it's signed, sealed and delivered. And so this just has to happen or something. Yeah. As a, as like he's not a political figure in his, his, yeah. his politics. So like, I don't, I don't want this to happen. But like, if we start disobeying the law in this case, we'll become like a lawless yeah, society. Yeah, that was very it, was a, it was a very slippery slope type argument to be like, well, if we don't destroy the earth in this case uh who knows what'll happen in the future. there was a moment friendly enough it was the day after the eviction started and there was a protest from a nearby village that they kind of rushed across the fields towards Lutzra and were eventually kettled and sat in the mud uh louise neubauer was there and a few the head of german greenpeace and they were just kind of kettled in the mud for ages so some people were keeping warm some people were playing music and um one of these police officers just starts who's, who's doing the kettling he just starts engaging one of the um, protesters in debate and it's just like <laughs> passing the time I guess by like very animatedly like having it out with the protester and being like you know I've done my own research and um, you know I, I do think they need to expand the mind and you know who the real you know who the real problem is it's NIMBYs it's the people who blocked oh the, my God. <laughs> it's the people who blocked the, uh, the wind farms Yes, the discord the, 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 poli- the police uh, the, when they get their personal opinions out there it's kind of interesting That's like such a like nice mix of like weird German traits. It's like, yeah, we're gonna have the grim police state and destroy the village, like for the sake of this coal mine. But like, also random people will feel the need to come up to you and start debating you about topics that you didn't ask them yeah. to. And you're like, you're like, man, we're on opposite teams here. Like, you're not gonna convince me. Like, I'm here, I'm sat here in the mud. Like, I've already made up my mind about this. Yeah. Like, well, actually, if you look at the facts, that's great. <laughs> but yeah, to, to to go back to your point about the. These strategies have been worked out for quite a long time. The, there's a lot of groups, different climate groups that have been active in Lutzra. Ende Gelende is, is quite yeah. a well-known one. Who uh, They kind of practice um, obstruction of fossil fuel infrastructure. They I think they started um, obstructing the Garthfader mine in 2015 or something. And so there's a lot of like knowledge of how to do this. And even when I visited in 2021, they were doing climbing courses. They were starting the construction of these tree houses. And the, I mean, you mentioned the kids doing, maybe these people have been doing it since kids because the handiwork is like the very, handiwork is impressive. very impressive. Like <laughs> yeah. some of these tree houses are like, they're really remarkable structures and it, it all functions quite well. It's, it's very impressive. I mean, I, I can't really wrap my mind around living there for years in preparation like that, pe- people yeah. were living there full time some of these protesters right yeah it would be a minority i mean it was quite a, as i said it's quite a wide array of, of people who, who went to lead some people a lot of people just for the weekend or people who are parents or they're scientists or they're students but the the core is kind of yeah this um autonomous groups you could say or anarchist groups and when i visited in 2021 you know they had like these plenums in the morning where they would meet and discuss the day's tasks. They would allocate cooking tasks and cleaning tasks and so on. Yeah. Uh, and some of those people have been living essentially like off the grid for, for years in these, um, either in squats or in the uh, forest occupations or these kind of things. And it's a, it's a tough life for the people who, who dedicate themselves to that. Um, but 
that it is a minority, but they they are the most organized part, as far as I can tell, when it comes to to operations like the ones in Lutzer. Because you you talk about this in the in the piece is that there is this sort of core of like people that that really devote a substantial part of their life to this type of activism and will be there for the long term. But it would also be a misrepresentation to say that like everyone there is a sort of like hardcore climate activist, right? There was a, a much larger group of thousands did assemble that was just looked like a sort of cross cut of like everyday sort of, you know, Germans there, you know, people that just care about care about the environment, just showed up to show their support. So like there maybe is like a sort of core a core group of activists, but there's also quite a bit of of broader support for protecting this village and stopping the mine, right? Yeah, I mean the climate movement I, I think the particularly the student, the Fridays for Future, I, I think the German one is the largest in the world. And I think yeah. you could broadly say that the I'm not sure any country has a larger proportion of people who go on climate protest in Germany. I would say there's there's very few. It is mm. a very big movement and it goes back a long way on even both sides of the wall. The environmental protest movement has been protesting either nuclear energy or lignite coal since you know, for half a century, really. The Greens, the Greens, the Greens, the gre- we'll the green, get there. But. Yeah, and the Greens come out of that, directly out of that movement. Yeah, yeah. Of and squatting, of, too. Of, of, yeah, yeah. And yeah, a lot of the squats in Berlin. I mean, a, a lot of the people there have been Green members or were uh, in Lutzerat, were, were Green members, or certainly Green voters, or some were, like, quite senior figures in the, the, the young Greens. It did. It did feel like kind of a to me positive but like a, an evolution of the Fridays for Future protest to then this direct action kind of thing right because I think there was this bigger protest the one that Greta was at on like the 12th or whatever of January and yeah you had like the broader populace there you right can, like you <laughs> can see a kind of like shift Louise Neubauer who is the as I said the kind of face of the German Fridays for Future was she's she's a Green Party member and I, I think she's supported them publicly before the last election, say. But she's been extremely critical of them over this. And this does seem to be for at least some of even the more moderate uh climate activists a kind of breaking point with the Green yeah. Party since they ultimately defended demolishing Lutzerat. Yeah, we'll get into some of the political calculations behind that. But yeah, Greta was Greta had a couple good moments here where she was like she was carried away by the police, like looking looking quite happy as if she was like a, I don't know, a queen being carried by like servants, just sort of smiling. She is as, my queen. It's like, like, <laughs> sort of, like the cops are like carrying her away and she's just like sitting there looking quite comfortable. Being like, okay, this. And then she was interviewed and then she was just like, yeah, Ger- Germany is embarrassing itself right now, which then turned into a, a bunch of occasionally cringe memes from like Berlin expat Twitter, but it was still a good, it was still a good clip. <laughs> All right, take it in, take it in the direction you want to take it, Ted. Let's let's. <laughs> I just want to like, I want to understand what's going on here. I want to understand why we're even, why we're even like dealing with. Why do we li- need fossil <laughs> Why are we dealing? <laughs> why are they still around? <laughs> what are we? Why are we dealing with lignite coal, like just extremely poor quality stuff, in the year twenty twenty three, in one of the most developed countries in the world? Like, what's what's going on here? So I want to talk a little bit about coal more generally and like German history and political economy. I think a because it's relevant. B I was in Essen last weekend and did like a tour of one of the mines there, and so I found the whole like coal history and <laughs> the labor niche. history. It's just it's quite it's quite cool stuff. Um, 
and more generally, like it's sort of classic Spassbrems of fodder, and we've said this a few times before on like our episode with Alex um, Brentner about um, where we also talk about the the German climate movement and uh, the sort of Greens' position on nuclear. Um, also, some that we've done about German transport policy, but it's the sort of kind of paradox about about Germany. It has a very green reputation, but it's a huge coal country, and there was a planned coal exit uh, in 2030, uh, moved forward actually from from 2038 in NRV, um, but in Germany, coal use has actually gone up in just recent years. In early 2021, coal accounted for about 27% of energy production. Uh, a year later, first half of 2022, that went up to about 32%, so an increase of about 5% in just a year, obviously largely attributable to the uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which then decrease the amount of natural gas being used, but also this is happening at the same time as the nuclear phase out. So you have also about a 5% decrease in nuclear energy over the same one year time span. And so the, the difference is about roughly made up by that. So there's there's kind of two things going on here. There's the, the geopolitics, and then there's also the exit from nuclear. At the same time, we're trying to exit from coal, but then renewables aren't coming online fast enough, but then Russia invaded. So we're also losing the gas. And so what steps in? Lignite. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different factors, but the thing that bring, brings Lignite always into focus is that it is ultimately the most abundant and currently the only fossil fuel available in Germany. It is there, it's cheap, mm-hmm. it um, can be dug out of the earth without great expense and burnt cheaply nearby. It's it's so cheap, in fact, that it's not really traded in the way the hard coal is. It's, it's not worth um, exporting, for example. And Lignite has, um, <clears throat> I mean, the history of lignite mining in Germany goes back about a thousand years, more or less. Yeah. And no country, as far as any of the records that I've seen, has come even close to burning as much lignite as Germany has. Not and China, they call it brown coal, Brown right? coal, like that's, Yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Lignite, brown coal versus like hard coal from a, from a shaft mine. And yeah, like you said, it goes, coal use goes back about a millennium, but... What we really associate, you know, Germany and coal, because I think they are, the, the story there is one that is sort of in the popular imagination, right? That's really um, the, the 19th century mostly and, and, and industrialization, you know, the, the engine of the big industry in the rural area, steel production, because coke to make steel. Um, and in the same way that you could sort of tell the political history of Germany through just looking at the city of Berlin, you know, the Prussian capital, Third Reich, Cold War division, and then eventual reunification. You can really tell the economic history of Germany through just the Western coal areas, right? The engine of the late industrialization um, and then massive, massive growth of German, Germany's industrial capacity, war production in the early 20th centuries. We talked before about German, um, German companies. Um, Krupp, too, is in essence. It's no accident that the giant steel producer is in the same area as where a lot of this coal is centered and then the starts of the european union with the european coal and steel community raising some of these resources above the national level to try to prevent conflict it's all this area it's all there Um, the post-war wirtschaftswunder the economic miracle eventually the structural changes in deindustrialization in the late 20th century and now the fitful efforts to decarbonize so like this this whole, all of these huge economic trends in Germany over over the last 150, 200 years, you can really tell all that story from these types of areas and these types of projects. 
Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's still ongoing. I mean, you mentioned Essen. RWE was founded in Essen in yeah. the late 19th century during the, the Royal Coal Boom. So that's where its origins are. Um, and it's still partly municipally owned, as it has been for 100 years. So it is partly a public company. And I think, though, I'm not, I can't entire, I'm not entirely sure that Krupp actually manufactured the enormous excavators that are in the Gautzwara mine. Um, so I think they're a, I think they're a team project. I saw yeah. like Tussin, Krupp, Bosch, and Siemens like oh, signs hanging. Players. I was like, all the yeah, we're getting the dream team together. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> I zoomed in on one photo on Twitter, and I was like, yeah, who makes these? Like looking at the signs, I was like, yep, the usual suspects. There we go. But yeah, I mean, the thing is the people associate particularly the Rhineland with black coal, but black coal became unprofitable more or less in the 60s or 70s or thereabouts. And it was subsidized for a long time up until 2018 when the last black coal mine closed in Germany. But uh, since the kind of post-war period or maybe since the 50s or 60s, lignite has has made, uh, made a real um, gain over black coal particularly in the DDR, where they really try to rely on the enormous uh, coal, lignite coal reserves in the southeast, which is partially the reason, you know, the the air quality was so bad is because they were burning large amounts of lignite. Um, but as I said, the it is it is there, it is in Germany, it's a local fuel. And just as um, after the, the, the Russian gas was cut off following the, the Ukraine war, that there was a turn back to lignite and the first increase in, in lignite use in, in the last few years, it's been declining otherwise. That was true also after the oil crisis of the 70s, both Germany's east and west decided lignite was a safe, secure full, uh, fuel that they could rely on. Yeah, quick correction issued from what I previously said. It- it's only Tussin, Krupp, and Siemens that are have signs on the on oh, the oh, giant Bosch, on the giant rig. I don't want to I don't want to unfairly malign Bosch and get in trouble for that. So, but still, so like I said, you know, the the coal from the region builds the Krupp steel. The Krupp steel helps take the coal out of this area. I mean, it's all you know, it's quite quite an obvious story, but it's you know, it's worth pointing out again. And like you said, yeah, the 1973 oil crisis. Uh, we recently did an episode with. Fritz Bartel about the consequences of this geopolitically and so if you haven't listened to that worth worth listening to that to get you know both the kind of domestic energy context of that crisis as well as like you were saying what, what that did to the actual energy production um, within Germany but of course through the second half of the 20th century there's kind of this this long decline they call it the, the Kohlekrise um, basically coal mined hard coal black coal was not profitable for a really long time and, and required subsidies you know you have the German coal is at a pretty deep depth. Sometimes you have to go down a full like kilometer underground, which is pretty crazy for Not some of me. these chefs. Couldn't pay me to do that. <laughs> One thing I learned is like I was like, yeah, why would you ever do that? Like, you know, there's all the processing above ground, but you made almost twice as much money if you were down underground still so, not me well <laughs> i'm staying above ground. well if you want to give your family a good quality of life you know give them that that uh dream then you got to go down there but yeah so that was for a long time not profitable it was propped up by subsidies for a really long time and then black coal mining stopped completely in 2018 i think they closed the last one then and that was really just as a result of the the subsidies drying up you know then this was a huge both symbolic and economic 
factor in, in Germany's post-war political economy. I mean, you, you think about, yeah, you see, you know, you see the guys with the, the guys with the hats and the, the goggles and all the smudgy faces. Oh, this is last and then there, you know, there's, yeah, there's the actual guys that look like they know how to do their job. Um, and then there's like Amin Laschet, who we talked about before, the, the failed CDU candidate in the most recent election, who's from Aachen, which is in NRV. He's a coal uh, man. Yeah, he's a, he's a coal man, but he doesn't. He, he would like to be a coal man. I, yeah. Here, here, here's the picture. I was, I was telling uh, Rory and Ted about this earlier where Laschet is touring <laughs> a mine and his face is, he's basically in blackface. The, he's put yeah. so much, like, uh, I'm not sure he could last an eight-hour shift. Is all I'm saying. And he basically covered his his face in like soot, and all of the other like engineers like behind him are squeaky clean. Like their faces do not have yeah, a, like <laughs> do not have a speck of dirt on them. <laughs> as as these processes like they tried to save labor because the German the German workers were were paid a lot and it made it difficult to compete on the world market. And also because it's it's deeper in Germany for actual. A good hard coal than um, than than other countries. Like you have to go down deeper, so the labor costs and the actual engineering costs were quite high, and so they're obviously doing a lot of labor saving innovations throughout the late twentieth century, to the point that things were like automatically carried out and then loaded into the little the in, into the the like elevator on the shaft to go up. Like you in this the the big famous one, the Deschutz Olfan, which is where I toured. They they stopped having guys in. The tunnels with axes in 1960. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! And okay. production That's went production went up after that because it got so it got so efficient. But before that, they were you know the little wagons and the guys yeah. like they were doing that kind of stereotypical thing. After that, it was much more automated because they're obviously trying to make this this more efficient to be able to compete. So to your point, like for a politician to go down there in like 2021, 22, whenever that was, and like slather coal dust all over your face, to try to make it look like you're doing a hard save. Like, he's with all the engineers. Like those guys, like. Yeah, they might like wear a hard hat, but like that's a technical job. Like they're not yeah. getting they're not getting their face dirty in the coal. Like it's a, you know, it became production would go up quite a bit while while jobs were shed throughout a lot of the late twentieth century. But coal politics is still it's still a big thing in the yeah. Rhineland and, yeah. and Lasha yeah. was the the minister president for NRV until two years ago or thereabouts. And he was known to be very pro coal, um and the CDU is still very pro coal there, but all of the part, major parties have been in government in the last twenty years, and they've all, at one point or another, backed coal mine expansion. It's just part of the economy there. And I remember speaking to some protesters who were saying, you know, I mean, RWE, the the mine company, is very popular there. It's been the backbone of the economy of the region for for quite a while. Or, or and it's a major partially part publicly it. owned, right? Yeah, it, it does. It is a multinational. It's it's active in other countries too. And a lot of those profits do go to the municipalities, so they do go to schools and, and housing and so on. And some protesters were saying to me, you know, it's hard to, to make the argument to people yeah. here when they say, RW built my house, they've built our school. So Yeah, you can't turn your back it, on it it's as this easily. Really, yeah. And it's familiar to people in, in other countries too, this really kind of fraught this like fraught politics of extractive industries where you don't want to blame the working class people who just want any kind of job to do this for the damage that's caused. Like, obviously, you take any kind of job you can get. But at the same time, by these like big companies who, who do this destructive work can secure this political buy in in the region by providing those areas and then protecting themselves from a political backlash. Because like you mentioned, the, you know, although it's 
maybe not as true anymore. The SPD has also been quite supportive of this as well. Their ties strongly with the unions. Um, post-war was the Ige Bagbao und Energie that then merged in 1997 into the Bagbao Energie und Chemie, so the mining, energy, and, and chemical industries, um, which is part of the, the unified um, German union system. And there, like I said, you know, had hundreds of thousands of workers, very close supporters as a labor union of the the Social Democratic Party. And so there's not, it's hard to create a kind of political constituency for exiting this and eventually the economic logic kind of pushes its its way through there. But it just shows you how delicate this is that both a kind of business right and labor center left are very hesitant about trying to phase out coal faster than they feel like it should be done. And you know, we should say, obviously, the amount of jobs here has declined substantially. I mean, from 1960, where I talked about where this one mine I was at introduced this new labor-saving innovations, there are about a half million people employed in all types of mining work, both underground and, and surface, um, manual and non-manual labor in Germany. That goes down to four figures by 2015 and, and, and even, you know, negligibly small after that. So while... And while we see the surface mines now and the huge projects, like the actual amount of people employed in this as a share of the German economy is vanishingly small. But it still has a great deal of symbolic importance. And it's so efficient now that it's also, in addition to the actual the, the workforce and the, the labor issues around that, it is just a big share of German energy production. And uh, one of the interesting things about RWE as a company is that it traverses so many eras it begins in the kind of coal boom of the rural valley but um i mean today it is legitimately a major supply of renewable energy it is making that transition which it claims it will be carbon neutral by 2040 it was also a supplier it's it still owns one of the nuclear power plants that's still online in germany um but it was a new it, it did go into the nuclear era as well um and then phase that out with the german um uh, decommissioning of, of nuclear power plants so it has kind of traversed all these eras and it is a partly public company so it you can kind of track German um, energy politics through, through a single company in this case for over 100 years yeah even a distilled version of what I was saying about the region but telling the history through that but actually doing it just specifically mm -hmm. through this one this one firm so that kind of gets us to the the tension here right where and obviously Merkel then decided to, to phase out nuclear, which we which we should say is an important factor here. Like the, the increase in nuclear for a while was kind of compensating for the, the decrease of black coal. And then nuclear gets phased out. It's the hope that renewables can kind of step in. Um, that doesn't happen quick enough. And like I said, then obviously the war and the decline in gas. And so that, that takes it to this, this moment where Olaf Scholz announced temporary measures. He said they'd be imposed for a very short period of time. <laughs> And they won't take anything away from our climate targets. Um, so he warned about what he called the renaissance of fossil energy and coal in particular after the Russian invasion. But still, this sort of crisis that's emerged as the war started has altered the landscape of German fossil fuel politics. So I think this is a good time now to get into the Greens position on here because... As you point out, they've taken 
they've taken a lot of the flack, like all the main parties have supported this this mine in, in Lutzerath. Um, but they've taken a lot of flack for some of the sort of dealings that they've tried to do to sort of ameliorate this in the long run, they would say. But yeah, what's the what's going on with the party structure of the Green in particular? The Greens in particular. I think Roy actually describes it well. I'm going to quote, quote your blog post. Um, the eviction at Lutzerath is supported by all major parties and backed by the courts, but a misguided piece of realpolitik has made the Greens the face of the destruction. The party struck a backroom deal with RWE last year. Lutzeroth would go, but five neighboring villages would be spared, and the Rhineland's phase out of coal would be brought forward eighty-eight years. Sorry, would be brought forward eight years to twenty thirty. So, the question of all questions: Is this a reckoning for the Greens? They're certainly getting the backlash for it. I would say. I mean, you never know what's going on behind the scenes, but I, I do think it's interesting that uh, locally in, in NRV, it's a CDU government with the Greens supporting and the ample coalition at the federal level is, is the Greens and the SPD and the FDP. But the only ones who really uh, were the face of this issue were the Greens. Um, so Habeck and... Uh, the energy minister, green energy minister, or sorry, green economics minister in NRV struck a kind of backroom deal with uh, RWE last year. And that made them, I, I'm not sure what they were attempting to do. Maybe they hoped that that would satisfy the, the protesters um, and, and kind of end the issue and nip it in the bud and they could focus on Ukraine, which is, is as their, as a party is, is more their focus these days. But um it was notable that none of the other parties decided that they would stick their oar in, really. Mm. Um, so they just became the face of it. So Habeck really became the face of, because of striking this deal, the face of destroying Lutzera. And he called this the, kind of the, the wrong symbol. And he said that, you know, it was a very unpleasant but necessary decision. And there's this wrong symbol it's line. Worth, yeah, I think it's worth quoting him here because it's, his quote, I think, Michelle, that you put in the document here, like kind of shows this very cynical attitude. He said, I believe that climate protection and protest need symbols, but... So true. I also believe yeah, that. Yeah, totally. I love symbolism. Yeah, like a, like a party <laughs> with green in the name. <laughs> but the empty settlement Lutzerath, where no one lives anymore, is in my view the wrong symbol. And it's like, no That's one lives... Well, well, no, but it also doesn't make any sense because no one lives there. No one lives there because of the planned mine. If you stop midnight mining and said we're not going to knock down your village, people would still be there. It didn't. It didn't self evacuate. This, this really riled people the, up. Yeah, this really yeah. riled the protest, particularly the symbol, because if you talk to anyone there, whether it's the more radical ones or the more moderate ones, they're very clear that like. This is not symbolic. There is 280 million tons of coal beneath the earth in Lutzerat. Where it should stay. It should stay in the ground. Yeah, and if it, um, I mean, Germany has no real hope of of meeting its uh, carbon budget under the the one and a half degrees um, goal target under the the Paris Climate Accords. It's not really going to happen, but that would be the nail in the coffin the that 280 million tons of coal when it's burnt will blow straight through that budget many times over the remainder of that budget so what the protesters are saying this is not a symbol this is about keeping carbon in the ground yeah this is and and that seems to be 
a major distinction between the, the leadership of the Green Party and the climate movement is thinking in symbols versus in keeping carbon in the ground. And so there was a lot of um, anger towards Habeck, particularly for that comment. Well, it's this thing, um, Giulio Mattioli, who we've had on the podcast a few times to talk about um, German transport and energy policy. He, this is sort of one of his pet peeves rhetorically is because obviously the aggregate carbon emissions from a given country come from so many different things because everything we do creates carbon emissions that any specific thing you might oppose is sort of by definition going to be a small percentage of total carbon emissions. Yeah. And so then you can argue against any kind of climate project on those grounds saying, oh, well, this actually isn't a very big percentage. Yeah. Because, of course, no, no one thing is. And That's we'll green it over here on the other side of the spreadsheet, and then it's okay that we, like, burnt all of this fuel. Yeah, because... but we're in a coalition <laughs> with the FTP, so we can't do the tempo limit. Yeah. You know, and, so, and, like, and it, you know, it, it comes from these little, it's all, like, if you're going to hit 1.5, which, like you said, we're not, it's going to have to come from a bunch of different little places, and you're going to have to try to find everywhere you can try to reduce carbon and you can always say oh well this is just this okay it's not the right but symbol the thing is you can logic, use that argument for anything that logic doesn't even quite work here because the amount the, the the amount of emissions we're talking about is so enormous i mean the neurath power plant which is is nearby and is where that coal goes to be burnt that's the second biggest emitter in europe like it, it is an enormous amount of emissions by any measure I mean, but he but he's making it seem small because it's only a couple of villagers. You know what I mean? Like it's I feel like they they say, oh, it's not a big deal. Like just these couple of people had to leave there. Yeah. And of course, they had to leave, as you said, because they were expropriated. Their land yeah. Was, yeah. They didn't really have it. They didn't have a choice. Um, many of them would have rather remained, particularly the last one. The no one happens to live there anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's it's bizarre. Yeah. They all just left. We're um, all trying to find the guy who did this. Yeah. <laughs> but it is, um, yeah, it was, it's quite a puzzling move. I, I, I can't but help think it's, it's, it's a misjudgment, really, to make themselves the face of this. I mean, they're a party that certainly in, in recent years has kind of made a virtue of being the ones to make hard decisions. And, and, you know, a virtue of sort of like um, putting your principles to the side for practical reasons. It's like a reasons. performative grown-upness. Like. There was a lot of self-pity about oh. like Habeck was saying, you know, this is a very hard decision to make. The environment minister of NRV, uh, who, who's green, was saying that he had trouble sleeping, but he nonetheless supported it. Um, Why well, have principles? Like, I'm sorry, I just, I, these people drive me crazy. Yeah, amazing. A really an amazing 21st century trend is politicians employing like wellness and therapy language to, to justify their things. I'm like, this is your you... prediction. You're saying you. No, no, it's already it's already happening, but it's just getting worse. I think especially as like millennials and, and Gen Z people enter positions of power, they'll be like. It's just going to get really This annoying. is a hot take. I'm just labeling it as such because I don't know how much I agree with and it, I just, I mean, you see it already, like, oh, I'm losing sleep about this. Do you know how hard this decision was? And then, like, you're going to have people, like, yeah, like, oh, do you know how hard it is to be gaslit by the opposition party? Like, you know, my, my imposter syndrome in the Bundestag is that, like, like, people are going to be able to weaponize this kind of language, which, like, starts in a good place on some level. And weaponize it to do very evil things, which you're already seeing. And I think like that's going to be 
that's my rest of the 21st century prediction is increasingly depraved things done with increasingly cloying therapy language to justify you heard it here first yeah this is, we'll what, check back in on that and one thing i'll say is when i visited in 2021 which was uh for a report about the the elections in september there i was and there were um also uh, regional elections in nrv i think the following spring they were I was expecting the people there, particularly the more kind of um radical uh people in the camp, to be like quite anti green already because the greens have, have compromised on a lot of these things before. It's not new. Um but actually they were quite positive. Most everyone I said uh, I spoke to who who had uh, a right to vote would was planning to vote for the Greens. Um they thought that, well, look, they're not that reliable, but there'll be an improvement um and when i came back uh just the other week that was there was none that was of that positivity left people were chanting they've betrayed us people were very angry at the greens so there is definitely a change the green party's position is not necessarily new they, they've been kind of had this kind of moderate position from the leadership for quite a while but there was certainly a big difference in how people perceive them uh, to a year and a half ago compared to compared to now. I mean, it's funny because I think the Linka has struggled with being associated with the old East and the kind of heavy industrial coal mining, fossil fuel interests of the former East, whereas the Greens have had a little bit more of a pure reputation as, you know, a green party and most estimates of their their last um pledges that you know the link actually has a more sort of environmentally friendly policy than than even the greens but i still think this maybe this is a turning point for this i'm not sure where else you would turn to if you were on the environmental left and you didn't want to vote for the greens but uh, where you would turn to other than d link i mean but it also shows a huge i think messaging failure for the left in this country that people kind of felt like the greens were the only thing on offer. And even after sort of repeated what they would call betrayals, the actual sort of more environmentally friendly leftist party still can't quite seize that initiative. I... My opinion on this, and I think um, Casper was talking about this on Twitter a little bit, but like if people aren't going to openly talk about who they vote for, we're never going to be able to like peel people away from the greens. I think there needs to be some degree of like shame <laughs> in you're looking at me very very dumb. I I, I do I do think to be fair within the greens. <laughs> I think parties like... should just be a party that people are proud to vote for because that's the process <laughs> of getting like that's you should I... be a sexy brand as a party. Like yeah, I agree like yeah, maybe you can like name and shame but like the easier way to do that is just be someone that has a good brand that people want to say they voted for. I do think there's a difference between you may be disappointed with the Greens, but you still think they're a party that could be moved and pushed in the right direction. And at least enough people still think that. They might be very disappointed. I mean, I think people have asked Louise Neubauer if she'll leave the party because of this. And I think she said no, from what, from what I remember. Um, there is certainly within the young Greens... Yeah, love anger about this <laughs> whether this will ever translate to Habeck or Baerbock or whoever might succeed them pushing 
more radical uh, politics who knows i mean one person i spoke to back in 2021 was saying you know it's frustrating that we do these protests and we put ourselves on the line and, and and you know dedicate our lives to this and when people see it on the tv they think we should vote for the green party and then the green party does not support them yeah so they feel they're doing sort of unpaid labor for uh, the green party well, yeah, the, or the, the, the green the green politician showing up at the demonstration being like... Actually, when I was there, just ahead of the election, the, it was at the weekend, and so there was a Green Party demo of the, the, local, uh, the local party basically organized like a cycle um, rally or a, a cycle mm. protest or whatever. So like a couple of hundreds of them like came on bikes to the edge of the mine. And there were some rumors that I think Cashin going Eckhart, one of the more conservative figures from the Greens, was going to come. Uh, and a lot of the protesters were, were kind of like rolling their eyes or groaning, but she didn't in the end. And there was this kind of mixture of just the Green Party membership and the kind of more radical autonomous protesters. And they were quite getting along. Um, so it was this kind of interesting crossover moment, but between the the, the 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 grassroots of the Greens and these more radical climate protesters. But ultimately, the actual leadership of the Greens, we know better to... It's a familiar dynamic, yeah. yeah. So, Rory, you should, you should write an article next about the, the German youth parties so we can have you back on and, and discuss that. Oh, that's an interesting we one, should, yeah. Yeah, we should, we should talk about that as like a sort of systemic way, sort of the way we surveyed the... The, um, the foundations and the, the party foundations in, in our last episode with you. Because for me, I think especially on the, the center-left parties, the youth parties are this like perfect sort of containment zone for radicalism. Like you get to act it out there. You know, we, we talk, I talked about this on Cornish Beatty with like Kevin Kunit um, and how, how like a lot of the like now current SPD leadership used to be like radical, you know, Maoists or whatever, you know, back when they were in the, the, um, the Yusos. And it's like, in, I think in both the SPD and the the Greens, you can kind of act out this radicalism in the youth party. And it seems like there's sort of this like, okay, well, the old guard is is more conservative, but this new generation will change it. And it's like, it's actually just the incentives in the youth party are to be radical because that sort of gets you, that gets you I'll more credibility. Yeah, it gets you, gets you attention and gets you credibility for them. Kevin Kunitz saying, you know, we need to move beyond capitalism and expropriate BMW when he was the, the head of but the, 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 the funny ESOs. And then he, then he becomes a part, you know, the regular party and gets a leadership role and totally backs away from that. And so, like, I don't, I don't think seeing radicalism in the, like, the youth party of the Greens is going to translate into anything because once you get into the party with the big boys and girls – the incentive structure totally changes. And so like you need to you need to play you need to play a you know radical to win in the youth party. You then get a good reputation coming out of the youth party and then you need to then way dial back that rhetoric to succeed in the party at large in the rest of your career. And I also wouldn't expect that many people to to leave the greens for like no one's going to leave for Delinka realistically if you're young and you you know want to have secure employment for the next several decades like just being completely honest are you talking the, about people who like louisa Neubauer, like politics. what she yeah okay. like you know <laughs> she could be a minister someday like there's no real there's no real you know just if you're looking out for your own career like the greens are going to continue to pull well for quite some time and like founding a new breakaway party or something like it just it doesn't make sense and i just i 
I see how people who are maybe have have like sincere environmental there is a breakaway beliefs, party or climalist I mean they've not yeah. done very well they got anywhere but they are like the people who could but, but if you're a careerist and you're ambitious and you're kind of you know as most people are I think watching out for their own back a little bit you could kind of ride this quite successful party for the next several decades and have a good career or you could risk it for your principles and join some breakaway party and like some people will do that some people really believe but the sort of political economy of the German party system itself disincentivizes that kind of behavior quite strongly yeah I mean link are also like non-entity in a lot of states that, that's they, what I mean too so it's, like it's just not a viable so career cool. yeah. path yeah I do think if I, on the point of the youth parties, a funny thing, though, compared to other countries is when, in other countries, you're talking about people in, in the youth parties, you're talking about, like, 22-year-olds. But in Germany, it's, like, 32-year-olds. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, Kevin, Kevin Kuhner in his youth days is calling for the end of capitalism when he was 32. But now that he's 34, <laughs> he's got a much more mature he Changes opinion. the man, you know? He's... <laughs> No, I love getting these like uh, these emails and stuff from like the because I'm in like the the educational uh, union here, the GEV, and it like I, I get these things for like the the younger GEV, and I'm like I'm like what like I'm like a why am I in the youth part of the union like I'm, I'm I feel I, I feel like I'm a, I'm a I should be a real member like no 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 you're still at the kids table it but that's how that, you're a real member it doesn't mean you're no I know it doesn't mean you're not like a full <laughs> member but it just is funny to like see those things and yeah it's like if you're in your early 30s you're still technically like in the the youth zone of german political activity all right should we back to luzzi for a little wrap-up yeah or did you have something else to add no no i think that that's a good uh that's a good kind of tie-in wrap up and rant about the the german <laughs> the german party system here and and i think it's you know it's, it's worth kind of emphasizing like how the war has been used to legitimate some of these policies. Like, Michelle, you put in here a quote from Katrin Hennenberger, who's a, a lawmaker, um, Green Party member in the parliament. She says, if it wasn't for the war, we would have found a political solution to save the village. And it's the same kind of rhetoric we hear over and over, I think, from the Greens is like, well, we really wanted to do it, but it just was out of our hands. Like the court just happened to rule this way, or we just happened to need this, or it's just not quite the right time, or Putin invade. And it's like, there's this constant, like, we wish we could have done better. And then it's like, but, but, but you're, you're in power. Like, what are we, it's also what are we actually going to get? The, the deal they did strike, I mean, they brought, they brought forward the uh, the coal phase that day by eight years. They say five yeah. villages, but ultimately people weren't convinced by this, partially because one one or two studies have come out that have said that even given the increase in coal use uh, and demand because of the the cutoff of Russian gas, it still doesn't justify expanding the mine. It doesn't need to be any bigger than it is, mm. though it might be somewhat cheaper for RW to to dig the seam under Lutzerat. It isn't actually necessary. And the other thing is that the 2030 is now the coal phase out date, but one with the um, carbon pricing at the EU level, that might become um, uneconomical by that point anyway. Yeah. And if it's not, there was a recent article in Zeit which found that RWE is potentially preparing to stockpile um, lignite 
for the years after 2030. So Great. as in dig, <laughs> dig faster and then have two years worth of stockpiles to burn if that's still economical to do. So the, the, the deal was not very sound anyway. And as, as uh, climate protesters have pointed out before that side article even, it doesn't put, put a limit on how much is dug up in the years that remain. So there is no guarantee that any carbon will be saved whatsoever. So it was a really unconvincing deal, even at face level. It, it, no, no one really was satisfied. Even a lot of the Greens did not seem particularly satisfied at the deal they struck here. And even the rhetoric of we saved five villages, it's like obviously that is important and there, there's, there's people that live in these places and that's their community and we should want them to be able to stay there. But like what you talked about with the, the, the activists trying to stress the rhetoric of like, no, it's not a symbol of like Lutzi, it's literally the coal and the carbon that's stored there. And so it's like we saved five villages, but, but as you point out, well, how much, how much carbon was saved, right? The, the villages are, are kind of nice, but framing in that way doesn't actually address what you're doing to achieve climate goals it just is like it's funny you know that hobbit criticized symbolic politics because that's what they're offering back is symbolic politics of well you didn't knock down the villages okay but how much coal did you burn the protesters are and you can see this in the banners and the graffiti and the flags and stuff in lutra they're focusing on this you know 1.5 degree um goal you know that that was pledged by the German government among other governments and they're trying to hold... it's, it's funny right it's not the thing that they're clinging to isn't some like radical yeah it's, it's right, some it's like right, radical you know no borders no nation yeah. kind of thing that you see on like, like a flag in a Berlin you, like, you signed the you... thing yeah, yeah we're just trying to get you to hold you to I'm your like, own words yeah. yeah and um you know they're quite internationalists in outlook they you know the banners that you see there for you know you see the, the YPG Kurdish banners you see once uh, in memory of the Ogoni 9, they're, they're trying to say that, look, we can burn coal here and it probably won't affect us so much, but in the countries that are more affected by climate change, when we blow past our budget, we're eating into theirs and we're causing harm to them. So this is something that they've really tried to put across, that, you know, we can breach, we can break our promises and the government can break their promises, but there will be other people in poor parts of the world who pay the price for that. Yeah. I think that's a good direction to kind of wrap this up. Obviously not a, not a terribly optimistic topic. I mean, I think we're ending on a grim note, but Lutzera specifically made me feel somewhat hopeful because of the like way it resonated in the general public, which we discussed and also just these individuals like sheer will against all odds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, is with anything like this where it's like feels like pretty clearly like it just a straight up defeat, right? It's always hard. I think it's hard to distinguish between like, okay, am I just sort of looking, grasping for cope and like a silver lining or grasping for cope, <laughs> <laughs> slouching towards cope. <laughs> No, but like, I think there can be a kind of like um, a defense mechanism, right, of trying to always find a silver lining in things. And sometimes things are just losses. Like sometimes they're just bad. And other times, yeah, okay, you know, you change, maybe you change the discourse a little bit. Maybe things will be different next time. Like you said, there wouldn't be, there's not much of Luturath left, like in spite of the heroic protesters and all their kind of innovative and, and clever tactics, you know, 
the village is going to be gone. The coal is going to be burned. Where do we go from here? Is there any, have you sort of seen any change in the political discourse from here? Any sort of heightened awareness or like, is there, is there anything we can kind of draw from this in the longer term that might be relevant to, to climate politics in Germany? Or can we just get used to more stories like this of like the, the cops clearly are getting better at kicking people out. Um, you know, maybe, uh, maybe we need like more advanced uh, treehouse technology for, for protesters <laughs> or like, I, we're like, what, what's the, Irish what's the way forward is... from here? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's early to say, I mean, some people have, there was a slight blip in the polls for, um, the greens in, in whatever the last poll was taken but it's, it's probably too small to, to take anything from it really um so yeah it's i mean you know they didn't want it to be a symbol but it may end up becoming a symbol of um it was certainly coming together of a lot of disparate climate groups more radical ones more moderate ones that i don't really think has been done before it certainly wasn't with let's say the humbucker forest so I think there is a, a sort of coming together of this big parts of the, the German climate movement or the climate justice movement and, and trying to articulate or physically block, um, you know, fossil fuel in- infrastructure and to articulate a sort of more radical politics than the Green Party in, in government or any of the other parties in government are willing to articulate themselves. So it's, it's, you know, too, too early to say, but it feels like Lutzerat will be of some importance to the climate movement going forward in, in terms of their strategy, in terms of their demands, and in terms of their expectations from uh, parties in government, particularly the Green Party. Yeah. Um, That's Michelle, that unless I, you have anything else? I might have to work on my treehouse skills. I could... Uh, it's... There will be more tree. Well, we gotta we gotta foster sure. the next generation. Can you get like a tree build, treehouse building unit at the Kita, <laughs> so we can get them started young, so we can like the the next generation of climate activists will be able to outsmart the police. And you do climbing courses in Sisyphus. Yeah, and if you see a guy that looks like a cop at like the climbing gym you go to, like get him out of there, because like, clearly they've they've gotten good at this. Yeah, I mean, symbolism. What if you put a kid up in the treehouse? Are they gonna? Pull it down. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the next I, I, Put kids in a tunnel. We can ask the Estras. I don't know what else. It's, it's getting late, and I don't know if we want to get into the ethical politics of <laughs> no, the human no, no. shields. <laughs> no, no. But no. it's a very interesting subject, and in this case is is not a, is not a very happy ending. Um, but your perspective on this and, and, and your observations of the the, the, growing, the growing pit and the, the people trying to resist it. I think are very insightful and definitely encourage everyone to read the piece. Um, it's pretty short, but very well written um, and very, very interesting. Has some good anecdotes in there as well. And obviously a topic we'll come back to soon. I don't think we're going to have any end to um, green hypocrisy on climate <laughs> politics and Germany's <laughs> ongoing fossil fuel dependency. So Get Robert Habeck on the pod. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was looking great in that photo the other day. The, the, like, Franco-German I'm convinced thing. they photoshopped him in. He didn't really have a shadow. I mean, he's got he's got quite good disheveled overwork. He had a five o'clock shadow. Damn. <laughs> all right, Rory, well, where can where can people read all of your stuff? Keep up with you. 
and if they google my name i don't have a website so they'll have twitter. to google me yes twitter why not <laughs> look for the spelling of rory's name oh, in, yeah. in uh in the episode <laughs> yeah. title <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> not straightforward you'll get you'll get, you'll get someone else up. unless unless you unless you're irish and you know how to spell his name um, but yeah, no, I, I really love that conversation. Um, really, really interesting to actually hear from someone who, who was on the ground. Um, wait, last detail. You said you had the figures on how big the uh, spinning death machine boggers oh. are. I don't think we got that out of you on the recording. No, he's, he's, Do you have the, you said they were the, some of the biggest machines in the world. Did you have the, the actual measurements of how large that spinning wheel is that destroys the earth? The wheel, I think it's, the, the thing is like uh, 100 meters tall. But they're at the viewing gallery that RW has set up is is kind of tarmacked and they basically have outlined the shape of the the excavator wheel on on the ground so you can like walk across it and it takes, I don't know, about thirty seconds to walk across or something. It's it's very and That's large. just the mechanism itself of the wheel with the blades that kills yeah. the earth. It's crazy that they're so proud of it too. Like they're like, this is pretty like to, to I mean, normal it's kind of cool in the way. way. Yeah, but no, it is. Yet like, you're both getting swept away by it. Well, like, that's that's how <laughs> I felt at the mine too. I was like, I was constantly being like, I was constantly like cycling back and forth between being like, capitalism is the most impressive thing that's ever been created. We invented all these things, and like to like extract this thing, it's so remarkable. And then the next second, you know, you think about what the work would be like, and be like how have we not had full communism yet? Like, that's such a miserable thing. How did they not seize control of the mind? Like, you, like, go back and forth between, like, awe at the technical innovation and, like, disgust at, like, what it's doing to both the, the labor and Can the Can we land. put the big machines to a better use? I'm not sure what, but... Can they innovate to make lighter weight steel-toed boots so they won't fall in the mud next time? Maybe I we, honestly maybe, think they might maybe be investing we can all, in that maybe to we can save come, face. This, this is... This is they need to work on their mud strategy. A simple yeah. proposal that I think the Greens might be able to get behind is we stop the mine, but we give the giant machines to Ukraine to gobble <laughs> up Russian trenches. tanks with. Yeah. Yes, to excavate the Russian trenches with to take back their territory. Wow. I think... Problem solved. I think... <laughs> if you have Annalena Baerbach's email, Imagine let you're me know. In the I feel like, I feel like I'm onto something like here. You'd be terrified. <laughs> I would run home. Okay, my other um, my other ad hoc um, innovation of a policy thing is decide that the German treehouse settlements are a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and then yes. protect, and then you can't mind it. Be like, no, like the German protest tree culture is World Heritage. Oh, I mean, I don't know anyone else doing it. It's I think unique, there's an right? argument to be made. I they love their heritage. I'm the sites. cuisine. Also See, you have to put these things at the end of the episode, right? like so people want to listen to it, the whole thing. Everybody's like, <laughs> retention, ten percent. <laughs> All right. Thanks, All right. Rory. Thanks a lot, everybody. Thanks to our listeners. Right, thanks thanks to our Patreon supporters as well. We're listening, uh, recording, I should say, on this lovely gear that you have helped us procure. So, Hope if you like us okay. hanging out here in Berlin and and, and sounding nice and crispy, then. Uh, we very much appreciate your support. Okay, tschüss. Tschüss. Ciao.